welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome, everybody, to another DIFF podcast. Today's episode is being hosted by myself, Danielle Moore, Operations Director, Mortgage Solutions. We are continuing the theme of invisible differences, and this month we'll be focusing on fertility challenges, which will include discussion around IVF and adoption. I would also like to take this opportunity to say that this episode does deal with pregnancy loss, which some listeners may find difficult to listen to. With one in six couples in the UK facing infertility, this is a topic which we felt compelled to talk about. In 2019, 53,000 patients underwent 69,000 egg transfers. This is an increasing trend, which means it is more and more likely that employers will be faced with work requests for absences for those undergoing treatment or as a result of physical and mental challenges that have developed through their journeys. There is, however, no statutory entitlement currently to have time off to undergo this treatment, meaning employees are faced with having to use all their annual leave in order to make appointments or that they feel forced to lie and say they're sick because they don't want to bring the subject up with their businesses due to fear of discrimination. This is a real issue, whatever company size you are part of. Fertility treatment is often put in the same bracket as cosmetic surgery, which it is simply not. This is not a lifestyle choice. Lots of employers are flexible, but with no legal requirements, there are no penalties for those who do not act in a fair way. Businesses need to really start thinking about how they can offer more support. Having a policy is a great starting point, but as we will hear, it doesn't stop there. You do not know what you don't know. Education is key. At Fertility Matters at Work did a recent survey where they spoke to a sample of women and found that 72% of them did not have a workplace where there was a fertility policy in place. Over 68% of them said that their treatment had had a significant impact on their mental and emotional well-being. And only 1.7 had a fertility policy that met their needs. This was all rather shocking to me. When you get pregnant through a natural process, you are afforded legal rights, such as paid off time for antenatal care and protection against unfair treatment, discrimination or dismissal. But this is simply not the case for people who are trying to go through the emotional and often financial challenges of even trying to get pregnant. I question the fact that we have offices for health and safety, diversity and even wellness at work. Why do we not have one for family planning as well? People are fearful about disclosing they're having IVF and many struggle to find the words to explain. As I've said, we also know managers don't know what they don't know. So it's very important that we as businesses train our staff to know what going through IVF involves and also how to support employees through the journey when it doesn't work as hoped. Stats show that as little as 21% of IVF cycles result in a live birth. 
Today, we're going to speak to two women, Stephanie Sharman, Strategic Relationships Director for Sesame Bankle Group, and Sarah Hartwell, Corporal Sales Manager, Vida Home Loans, who I can only describe as just so very courageous for sharing their stories with us today. Their hope is that if we can make a difference to one person who may be going through the same as they did, then telling us about their experiences will be worth it. Sarah, I want to come to you first. Do you mind just giving us a bit of introduction to you and then talking about the journey you've been on? Thank you, Danielle. So I'm Sarah. I've been in financial services since the age of 23 and have worked very hard over the last years to achieve the position that I hold today. I love my role and have the pleasure of working with some really lovely people over the years. And if I am able to help one person with this podcast, my job is done today. So here's my story. I met Stuart in 2005, and five years later, we married in Sirencester. I was an only child and had a very unhappy childhood. I always wanted to be part of everyone else's family growing up and always fantasized about having my own large family. I never just wanted to be a mum and have a baby. I wanted to wait until I could have that family. I met Stuart when I was 20, sorry, I wish I had met him when I was 27, but I was 37 and wanted to make sure that the relationship was going to last forever before we started a family. The trouble with being brought up in an unhappy and traumatic household is that when you want to have children yourself, it scares the hell out of you as you don't know if you're going to turn out the same as the parent, which was my dad. So I think this was putting me off starting a family and whilst I battled with these demons. We started trying when I was 40 and the journey was a long and painful one, becoming a mum to our daughter in January 2016. So how it started was when I was uh, sort of 40, everybody was saying, you need to crack on now, you need to get pregnant. But then on the other hand, I always had someone telling me, I know someone that's 41, I know someone that's 42 that's got pregnant. So it was at the back of my mind, but I still thought, yep, loads of people are getting pregnant in their 40s, you know, I don't have to try so hard. We did start trying and we went down the natural way, which I'm sure most people go at the end of the month, you're wishing that you're pregnant, it doesn't happen. And I think it even gets to that stage where people say to you, if you go and climb this mountain on a certain day when the moon is shining, you're likely to get pregnant or if you go into the toilet in an aeroplane and 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 have sex when you're not worrying about it you're going to get pregnant and I think when you're in that situation you will believe anything so after six months nothing had happened I went to the doctor he said that we don't have to wait the usual two years because I think that's what the normal policy is two years before you'll be referred to a fertility specialist So we were referred straight away to a fertility clinic in Cheltenham. This was just really to find out if there was a problem with me. So I went into hospital in November and they did the normal things. They looked at my tubes and another thing came in the way. She noticed I had endometriosis 
And also that's another thing that I think we should mention on this podcast today is if you are having difficulty with your monthly cycle, please, please do go and see the doctor because this is a really big thing that causes infertility as well. And the longer it goes unchecked, the worse it is. So anyway, she did what she had to do with the endometriosis. I had a cyst, so she removed that. So she said, yeah, great. We're all good to go ahead and start IVF in January. I always remember when I broke the news to my mum, we were actually in Marks and Spencers in Swindon having a cup of coffee. And I said, oh, mum, really good news. We're going to start IVF. And... She wasn't pleased and and afterwards she said to me, she said, I always knew, Sarah, that you weren't going to be strong enough to handle this. And, And I don't think she meant it in an awful way, but having suffered quite hard with thyroid and being quite poorly before, I think she was just really scared for my mental health. And actually, they always say mum knows you the best and, and she was correct, as you'll hear later in the story. So... I was very excited. Stu and I went to the fertility clinic and they do a talk about it. And I always remember Stuart saying to me, you know, Sarah, he's a numbers man. Think of the statistics here. You've got this many people in the room and actually only this many people are going to get pregnant, which is what Danielle basically said on her introduction. And I remember thinking, I didn't want to think that, you know, I was here, this was my chance. I was going to be the mum that I really had longed to be. So we came away and then you go to the clinic, they do your first appointment, they tell you what's going to happening. The drugs are all delivered to you, which, you know, probably I'm not scared of needles, but you've got to imagine people that are scared of needles, you're injecting yourself every single day. So you start first by sniffing this drug, which is basically sending you into menopause. So as we were saying, I was doing this all in private. I probably told a few close friends, but no one at work. So I was sniffing this stuff that was sending me into menopause. And we we talk about menopause now, how it affects your mental health, your work abilities. So off I was going every day doing appointments because I was a BDM at this time, feeling pretty rubbish. So then you go and they do a blood test to make sure that you are into menopause and then you start your injections. So what you're really doing then is you're growing your eggs, you're producing. So I always think of IVF as absolutely turning your body around to what it shouldn't be. It's like someone taking control of your body and making all these natural things happen by drugs. So even thinking that way, you know that you're gonna feel ill. So I was injecting every day and then I had to go probably every three days for a scan to see how many follicles you had. I was on the highest dose and and my follicles were not stimulating well. All the time, I was still going to work, still doing my appointments, still coping with, you know, people that had problems with their cases. And then I go for the last one and they said, we've got two eggs. And probably Steph will be able to talk about this when she talks about her IVF. Most people probably clept between 12, 16 eggs. So I got two. So I knew the chances were probably really slim. So they then take you into hospital. So I would have booked the day off as holiday for this, went into hospital and they're going to remove the eggs. 
So they sedate you really. So you're out, you don't remember anything. But I just remember and they said, sorry, it's taken a bit long and we've only got one egg. So I'd gone from two eggs down to one egg. And then you think, so they send you home. So you literally just get off, off the bed and uh, off you go home. And they've got your egg there. They've got Stuart's um, sperm and they're going to fertilize it. So I've only got one egg. So that night was absolutely horrendous because I was thinking this egg isn't even going to fertilize. But it did fertilize, which was great news. But the chances obviously were not very good. So they put the egg in. And, you know, the first time I I just went about, they call it the two week wait. You know, you look on any IVF site, it's called 2WW. And and that two week wait is probably the worst anxious wait of your life. I went back to work, carried on. If I knew what I knew now, I'd have probably, or if there was some sort of fertility policy in place, I'd have probably sat up with my feet for that two weeks and just taken the stress out of it. But the two-week wait came. You go into the toilet, you do a pregnancy test, and it's negative. I don't know. You know, it's such a long time ago, but I was absolutely devastated but you have to pick yourself up not many people know about it I remember going into the clinic she calls you in after it's failed so you go in and then basically what she did say to me is Sarah there's absolutely no point you doing your own IVF again your egg reserve is not good I suggest that you go down the donor IVF so this is another whole emotional roller coaster because you're having a baby that isn't yours in a way. They're taking someone an egg and they are mixing it with Stuart's sperm. So it would be Stuart's child, but not mine. So that's another real thing to get your head around. But we went over, we were recommended a clinic in Barcelona, um, really, really good clinic, really good I did lots of write-ups. So we we went and met them over there and it it seemed really good. And I remember going in after my checkup and all these pictures of babies all over the room, obviously, you know, patients that they had helped. And I remember thinking to myself, what if I am that one person that can never have my own child? It was like a pain, a real, real pain, you know. I'm not going to have my own child. So we went off and we agreed we were going to do it. So what I should have really probably said at the start of this is there was no free IVF over 40. So this was all paid for by myself and Stuart. So we'd flown to Barcelona, hotel in Barcelona, back again. We then decided that we were going to do the journey and we started with the drugs and everything. And then I had a bleed so we couldn't go ahead then we started it again and the donor didn't produce the eggs that were needed so that's two times and then I started feeling a bit weird so I had a thyrectomy partial thyrectomy in 2000 from a overactive thyroid called Graves disease and I always remember they said to me, oh, going down the line, you're probably going to have to take thyroxine because it's probably going to end at no time did they tell me that it would come back. 
Well, anyway, I remember saying to my neighbour, do you know what? If I didn't have a thyroid, or I've only got a little bit, I think I've got my overactive thyroid again. I was crying. I felt ill. So I went to the doctors and yes, it was back. And they think the IVF drugs, probably the stress of it brought it back. So I had to have this break from the IVF and time's ticking age is ticking so I was really ill with my thyroid I had to go out and have it completely removed and six months off where I was so poorly so poorly but nurse myself back like I do I bounce back and said Stuart let's go ahead again so they cleared it that we could start IVF again so in the January So for the first time with your donor egg, what happens is they're running you and the donor along each other. So she's doing the drugs, the injecting, you're doing the sniffing to throw yourself in menopause. So your body is ready for the eggs, basically. So we fly out to Barcelona, so money again, and we had to stay a week this time because we had to be ready for her. So in theory, she was going through the IVF like the first time I'd actually had it. So we went out and she produced, I think it was eight eggs, nine eggs, which they said was really, really good. And four, no, five, hold on, sorry, four uh, went through blastocyst, which is where they take it to five days, where your chances of them implanting are much higher. So it was all going really well. Last day, he said my blood pressure was a bit high, so they were only going to implant one. So they implanted it. We flew back from Barcelona two days later and the two-week wait starts whilst still working. And then we did the two-week blood test and it failed. So we're now on number four. Two, we didn't get to the egg thing, but you're still starting that emotional roller coaster. So then what the good thing is, because they produce four eggs, they freeze them. So you yourself, you only have to go through the menopause thing again. So it took me a couple of months to get off, decided to do it again. So off we went back and they decided to put two in this time. So... We were there probably four days, so lovely, you know, the best hospital. They treated you so well, even better than the one I went into the UK. All the time, I was doing this on my holiday, still probably telling very little people. And I think Danielle mentioned earlier that you don't want to tell your employer because of what they might think of you. But also, you know, when people are trying for a child, they don't tell anybody when they're doing you know the night before they've tried for a baby they don't come in and say hey i tried for a baby but with ivf it's so out there isn't it it's so not the same of just having it in closed doors between in your house so i came back and i remember this time i i sat on the sofa it was probably 10 days into my wait and i remember sitting on the sofa and i had this flutter in my tummy and I was like oh my god what's that you know that's really weird didn't think about it and then went to the hospital my two-week wait was over and I went to do my bloods 
So I rang up and they said, oh, I'm so sorry, we've lost your bloods. I'm so, okay, can you come again? Yeah, 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 fine. And I'm like, and, I, and I'm going to stress, it's one of those things that the minute you've done a pregnancy test, your dreams and hopes are, are up. Because as long as you haven't done a test to find out if you're pregnant or not pregnant, there still is a chance. So I never, ever wanted to do a pregnancy test because it, it just meant it was all over. But that day I thought, do you know what? I'm going to do a pregnancy test. I did a pregnancy test and it came back positive. I was like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. And I remember phoning up Stuart and saying, I'm pregnant, Stuart. And I remember ringing up my mum and she was on an old people's bus tour with my auntie. And I was like, mum, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. And do you know what? I never, I never want that moment to be taken away from me because I have had that moment where I've said to people, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. So, you know, we were really happy. And then a couple of weeks, it was Easter. So we went down to my mum's and I was meeting my friends. And in the morning, I went to the toilet and I had a show. It, and I was like, oh, my God, what's this? And my friend said, you need to get to the... It could be just like, you know, people go through this, they have it, you know, some people bleed. So I remember that trip to A&E. I knew, I, I think I um, knew deep in, down inside that it wasn't going to happen. So we got there, they kept me in all weekend and did a scan and there was nothing there. It, it had gone. And I felt like someone had literally broken my heart, had stabbed me right, right in the heart, really. I remember the journey home from Wales and... And I, I took a week off then. I, I told them at work what had happened, that I had had a miscarriage. My boss w was amazing, at Nationwide, really amazing. And people called me. And I always remember the one thing, and people try to be so kind, but I remember people saying to me, oh, my wife had a miscarriage or so-and-so had a miscarriage, and, and they tried again. But what you've got to remember with IVF, you've only got a limited number of eggs. You might only have the limited number of money, all these things. So in a way, it's not just a baby you've lost. You've lost all, all your hopes and dreams. All your hopes and dreams are, have gone. So, yeah, so I took a week off work. You know, when I think now, I think a week off work when you've just lost a baby is ridiculous, you know. So I went back to work. We had one egg left. So this was Easter. So in July, we flew back out to Barcelona again, not telling anybody holiday. Used to say I was going away here or there. So I lied. I lied to people as well, you know, and that shouldn't have to be. So we went back out to Barcelona. We had one egg in the freezer. So the first thing we had to see was it could have not defrosted. Well, it did defrost. We did it and it didn't work. So that was it. That was everything over because I realised that I couldn't go through it again. My mum said that if I went through it again, she thought it would put me in the grave. So I made that decision that that was the end of it. I And, and I often look back and think, God, if I'd done one more cycle, would I, you know, would I have that child? Yeah, probably. Statistic wise, yeah. Because when you think about it, I was having... 26 27 year old eggs 
so the chances were high and there was actually nothing wrong with me inside. And I can remember I picked myself up and obviously battling with, you know, what was I going to do? My chances of being a mother, everyone else could be a mother, I couldn't, you know, what had I done wrong? Why was it my fault? I'd left it too long. Why hadn't I done it earlier? And I still think that even if I'd done it much earlier, my thyroid and my endometriosis would have meant infertility anyway. So I don't think it was anything to do with the age. It was, that's what she basically told me anyway. So I remember one day I was going to a Connell's meeting actually with my boss and I stood up to do a presentation and I just had the biggest panic attack. And now I look back, my body was saying, Sarah, you know, it's been through all this. Give me a break. Yeah. So I basically went home and I didn't go back to work for six months and I had PTSD. So it really, really affected me badly. I'm here. I'm today. I've carried on. But that's my story about infertility and IVF. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. I mean, you know, just listening to you, you mentioned it and said it a couple of times, but the emotional roller coaster that you went through is so hard to hear. And I think you made a, a couple of kind of comments through your story regarding, you know, starting at the beginning with how you really didn't feel very well, but you weren't telling people. And do you think that if there had been a policy in place within your business at the time that you would have felt a bit more able to talk about it? Or do you think at that point it still would have been too difficult? That's a really good question because I think it would have been nice if it it had a policy because not everyone would have had to know, but you would have felt less pressure. You know, like I was saying about the two-week wait when a couple of times I thought, did I not fall pregnant because I've been running around and taking calls and being really stressed? Is that a reason why I haven't got pregnant? So I think from that point of view, but sometimes, Daniel, you don't actually want to tell people as well because you don't want that person saying to you at the end of the two weeks are you pregnant are you pregnant and the more people you have to tell that you're not but I think from the point of policy I think it probably gives you more physical and mental break and you're using all your holiday so you're not actually able to have any sort of problem holiday through that year because you've used all your holiday for going away and you know especially with us doing donor IVF because we've moved from doing normal IVF into another form of IVF donor IVF which meant I have to leave the country because in this country if you do donor IVF it has to go on a register and that person can actually come and find you at the age of 18 whereas if you go to Spain it's anonymous and that's why we did that. And actually also I think for me something else that came out was about being there's sounds like there's a huge amount of appointments that you have and that you had to work in within your working day and due to the role that you had you were able to do that just about probably (laughs) but 
But also what strikes me is, you know, for, for some people, maybe people in a different type of role or in maybe a junior position, actually, how would they be able to get that time to structure their day so that they can do that? Because presumably, you know, there's only so much holiday everyone has. So that sounds like that would be a really difficult thing for, for people to do as well. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because the role of a BDM, you're travelling all around the country, so you can take your lunch hour or whatever to go to that appointment uh, without, I suppose, what you're saying, people knowing. But, you know, if you worked in an office all day, there's only that many, you know, clinics around. Your workplace could be half an hour from the clinic. So if you're going for the clinic and then you're probably there an hour, two hours for your scan and all your checks, etc. So, yes, Danielle, I would say that would be really hard in that position. Yeah. And I think there's quite a lot more to talk about here in terms of the fact that this is a genuine medical issue and that employers need to recognise that. And we can talk about how you think it would have been better within the business that you worked in or if it would have made a difference at that time to you. But before we go into that, I just want to bring Steph into our conversation. So Steph, if you just wouldn't mind giving us, for those of who are listening who, who don't know who you are, just a little brief overview of that. And if you wouldn't mind taking us through your journey, which is slightly different to Sarah's. Thank you, Danielle. I'm Steph Charman. I've worked in financial services for about 27 years now, falling into it as a role straight out of college, which is like most people's, not our initial plan. And um, I moved into intermediary distribution about 20 years ago. And for the first five or six years, I've worked here at Sesame Bank or Group. I'm a busy working mum. I have a teenage son now, and I've been very lucky. My husband's incredibly supportive and has allowed me to sort of focus on building my career But my story is slightly different to Sarah's. We got married in the summer of 2005 and decided that maybe it was the right time to sort of start trying for a baby. And we were lucky we fell pregnant very quickly. We fell pregnant the following spring. But the pregnancy was difficult right from the beginning. But I didn't realise it was difficult or different because I've got nothing to sort of compare it against, really. We were the first one out of all our friends to start trying and my sisters, etc. So... I was incredibly sick. I mean, to the point where I couldn't get my head off a pillow without throwing up morning sickness. They ended up having to medicate me. And I thought that was just normal, to be honest. But at 34 weeks, I was still really, really unwell. And I remember it was a Sunday afternoon. My husband said, you just don't look right. I think maybe I'll whiz you down to the antenatal clinic and and see what was going on. And I went in and they straight away sort of took one look at me and one look at what I was saying to them about how far along I was and sort of whisked me off to a room and they measured up my bump and my bump was only measuring at sort of 26, 28 weeks, where actually I was 34 weeks. They kept saying to me, you know, your dates must be wrong, your dates must be wrong. And I was like, no, 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 we were trying for this baby, I know my dates. And they said, well, you better come back tomorrow, we think we need to do some scans and have a look. And I overnight became a high-risk pregnancy, baby was really small and they said something wasn't right, but it was going to be okay. It wasn't a problem. Some babies are just small and, you know, maybe there's, you know, something else going on in the background, but it's nothing serious. So I was going back every week for weekly growth scans. And at 37 weeks, they decided that the baby wasn't growing any further and they needed to induce labour. Well, very quickly, that induction didn't go very well. Baby's heartbeat kept dropping. They had a theatre prep for an emergency C-section. And lucky enough, Isabel was born naturally very, very quickly and not very pleasantly. I won't go into detail for everybody, but not very pleasantly. 
but she wasn't breathing. They whisked her off. At that point, I didn't even know I'd had a baby girl. They whisked her off. I sent my husband outside. I said, follow the baby. He won't talk about what happened outside that room, even to this day. But they resuscitated her and they took her off to NICU. And NICU is a really scary place. It's full of incubators and noises, monitor noises that you just don't really sort of understand. But everybody's very, very supportive and they calm you as much as possible. It took a few hours before we could go and see her. You know, they had to get her comfortable and, and settled and they had to get me repaired and uncomfortable and settled. And then they popped me on a ward with five other women who'd all given birth that day with their babies in their little cribs next to them. And I spent a night wishing I could go to NICU and see my daughter and listening to these other women, in some cases actually whinging about the fact that their babies won't go to sleep and all they want to do is have some nap time themselves and all I'm doing is sat there wishing I could be one of them. But we got up the following morning, my husband came in early doors, we were sort of like the league of beavers at the NICU door the minute the visiting hours were open and they let us in and we went to see her and she'd had a, a really good night and the nurses said to us, you know, yeah, she's really, really small. She was just four pounds, 11 ounces, and, but she was going to need to stay in hospital for a couple of weeks and they'd move me to a different ward and I could stay with her and it was, they, you know, they thought it was all going to be okay. And then our whole world changed. A couple of hours later, the consultant came to see us. He'd gone to see Isabel and he'd observed everything. And he said, I'm going to start at the bottom of my list and work through everything I've seen. And we just sat there and said, well, how much is on this list? What have you seen? All we could see was this beautiful little baby girl. She was tiny. I take she was tiny, but that's all we could see. We couldn't see anything else. And he went through and he said that there were a number of things, but the most thing they were concerned about was her heart. So they were going to take her off to Southampton Hospital, I live down on the south coast, for a specialist heart scan. We couldn't go with her. So we watched her go off in, if I'm honest, what looked like an alien tube, if I'm honest, they popped her onto this sort of specialist transport. And I know it's going to sound absolutely ridiculous, but I stood by the window in that room and didn't move for the whole day, waiting for her to come back. I sat there. We were being prepared. We were being expected to be transferred up to Southampton because... They were going to have a plan, they were going to do this scan and they were going to have a plan for what they were going to do. And we were going to sort of find treatment and I'd get transferred up to Southampton as well to, to finish my recovery. And then we saw the ambulance come back. So my husband ran down to NICU to meet her at the doors. I wasn't very fast on my feet at this point, but he ran on ahead and he overheard two of the nurses say that she'd come back because there was nothing they could do. And people quite often ask me what was the worst day of our whole experience and for me it was that day because all your hopes you've gone through this whole roller coaster but you're holding on to this glimmer of hope and in that one moment in time as my husband came back through the door I could tell by the look on his face what he'd overheard and what he'd been said and your, your whole world just feels like it's ended they diagnose Edwards syndrome it's a chromosome disorder she had a whole host I never saw them but the doctors did a whole host of things that weren't quite right. And one of those being a, a significant, a number of significant defects with our heart. And it was incompatible with life. We were told we probably got hours, maybe a couple of days. So we put our focus on to organising a christening and getting people to come and meet her, like my mum and my dad and, and everything else. But she defied the odds. And as the hours went on and that next couple of days, that weekend went on, she, you know, started to feed and 
she started to do okay and they said we can make some plans to take her home so we ensured we had all the support and equipment and everything to take her home and um and off we went and she really was a miracle she did defy the odds we had a wonderful family christmas together we took her to see santa we spent time with family and friends and i took her into work because everybody else took their babies into work so why didn't I get to have that experience? And everybody at work were absolutely superb because it must have been just as difficult for them as it was for us. And we tried to live a, a normal life. As she approached 12 weeks old, she put on a little bit of weight and she was feeding and she was doing really well. So we started to have some different conversations around whether actually they could start to operate on her heart defects. And that came with a whole host of risks. and. You're sat around a table with a panel of doctors and nurses who are calculating odds. And I'm sat there, as you can imagine, or anybody who knows me, very emotive and very, actually probably a little bit rude, actually, because I'm sat there saying, you're talking about my child as though she's odds. But to us, we need to do everything we can. She's defied the odds up until now. What do you know? You told us one thing 12 weeks ago and you got that completely wrong. So, hey, let's, let's have a different conversation here. But it was a really, really difficult decision and, and Isabel sort of made that decision for us. And um, a couple of days later, she got pneumonia and she fought really hard, but she did pass away. Sorry. Um, at the, um, I, um, my husband went back to work really quickly. He didn't know what to do. You don't know what to do. And my next door neighbour, we'd gone through our pregnancies together and life carries on. And so after a couple of weeks, people, they don't mean to, but they stop visiting, they stop phoning. And so you're left completely alone. And for me, I was left alone at home watching my next door neighbour quite rightly, quite rightly, pop her baby boy in the car and off out for trips or pushing the pram down the road. And if I'm completely honest, it was absolute torture, absolute torture every day. So I went back to work. I decided going back to work was the right thing for me. I needed a reason to get out of bed every morning because if I'm completely honest, I didn't want to. I needed a sense of purpose again. And I needed to find out who I was because you become a mum and everything changes. You change, you change overnight, you change in an instant. But I wasn't a mum anymore. But I didn't know who I was. I'd lost, I completely lost my identity. Worked very supportive and just, just literally just a few weeks after Isabel passed, I went back. But people didn't know what to say to you. This is not a criticism of anybody. I completely understand it. But I'd, I'd go into the kitchen to make a cup of tea and all of a sudden it would be definitely quiet. And then you sort of feel awkward. It was actually quite lonely. I felt alone in a very busy office. And... All I wanted was normal. I wanted to talk about The Apprentice the night before. I wanted to talk about what people had done at the weekend. There was a couple of girls in the office who were pregnant and they avoided me like the plague. And actually, I was over the moon for them. I mean, just because of what I'd gone through. I wanted them to have a, a different experience, but people didn't know what to say. I threw myself back into it. If I look back, it was the worst thing I could have done, actually. I needed some help, but I didn't actually really see that. And nobody actually approached me nobody approached me to say do you think actually you need some help do you think maybe you should talk to somebody a couple of months later though i fell pregnant and we weren't trying at all but this pregnancy was 
even more difficult than Isabel's. I was hospitalised due to severe dehydration from being so sick. And it was a scan that we were told we were having twins. This was an absolute shock. There's no history of twins in either of our families, but we thought, okay, maybe this is a blessing. So we went into it with mixed feelings. Because of everything that had happened before, I'm high risk and the consultant recommended that we had an amniocentesis, so where they go in and, and take a little sample so they can test for chromosomal disorders really up front. Um, we got to that appointment, that's 13, 14 weeks, and we were advised that we, I was expecting twin girls, but both girls had passed away. And again, we were absolutely devastated. I, I couldn't understand why this was happening to us at all in any way, shape or form. Again, we told everybody at work, we'd got so excited. Everybody knew, friends and family knew. We'd shared this news around twins. And then again, we're sharing such devastating news with, with everyone around us. A few months later, I had a, a miscarriage at six weeks. And it was at that point our consultant said, look, we need to try a different tact here. This, this isn't quite working. He was incredibly supportive. And he said, I suggest we start IVF not because you have a problem of getting pregnant yourself, but so we can genetically test the embryos before we re-implant them. There was no guarantee at that point that we would get an embryo that we could implant, but it was worth a try. And just as we were about to start that path, I fell pregnant with our son and it felt different immediately. Again, high-risk pregnancy and everything that comes with that. Sarah talked about the moment you pee on a stick and you get a positive result, your life flashes ahead of you, if it doesn't flash ahead of you a couple of weeks, it flashes ahead of you nine months, two years. You see the baby in your arms, you see the little one you're pushing around on a tricycle, you see them go to school, every, you know, you have this picture in your head about what, what's going to be. That had gone for us. Every time I peed on a stick, we sort of got to a little bit of a, oh, well, let's just wait for it to go wrong then. And that's not because I'm a negative person, but you knew no different. So all our path ever knew was, don't get too excited because somewhere along the line, we're going to come and knock you back down again. And that's how we were with Charlie's pregnancy. There was no excitement in any of that. But I was surrounded by professionals. So they then got me counselling. I had midwives, I specialist midwives, I had counselling. But that meant I was at appointments, sometimes two or three times a week. So the time off work that I'm having was significant. And in the early stages, I told no one but my body was starting to give me away. By this point, I'm multiple pregnancies down the road and I was struggling to hide it, if I'm honest. I was, you know, I was back in pregnancy clothes by sort of like 12 weeks. So I don't want to tell anybody, but actually people are starting to give you that look of, is she, isn't she? She's out a lot. And I didn't want to tell anybody. So I was making things up. I've got a dentist appointment here. I've got a physio appointment for this here, just because I didn't want to sort of share my news really. I was signed off at 28 weeks, so we got to a point where I had to tell people and my blood pressure was through the roof. And the consultant said to me, we need you in here every single day for monitoring. I got onto first name terms with the nurses in that hospital. Some are still very good friends now. And at 37 weeks, because my blood pressure was so high, they decided that they needed to induce labour again. We'd bought nothing at this point. So if anybody's a shopaholic, we went on a fabulous shopping trip the following day after being told that I was going in on the Sunday, this was on the Thursday, because we bought nothing. Because again, you don't go and buy anything because just in case, who knows, who knows what's down, down the road. But we were lucky. And after a very easy labor, our beautiful, healthy baby boy, Charlie was born. 
and he's been nothing short of a miracle. Though he is 14 now and driving me insane, but he's still a miracle. A year later, again, not trying at all, I fell pregnant again. We were apprehensive, but this time we were thought, well, you know, let's be more positive because, you know, we've had Charlie now, maybe our journey's gonna be different. But it wasn't meant to be. I actually miscarried earlier at a work event. I knew straight away, I didn't tell anybody. I just got up the following morning and headed home, saw the consultant and he did what he needed to do. We booked him procedures, et cetera, et cetera. But they did investigate further and, and got to the point where they now know it's me. I, I don't have very healthy eggs. There's a big, long technical term, but the, the crux of it is I don't have healthy eggs. And the consultant said to us, look, I've got you, Charlie, but I don't know, one, how much more you can take emotionally and physically. I think it's best that we actually decide now to finish your journey here. That was really quite final. Our friends around us were talking about having their second or third babies and their biggest consideration was, do they have enough bedrooms and is that what they want to do? For us, our journey was being cut short. I'm in my early thirties at this point. So we took that decision and I made the decision that wouldn't happen for us. And my husband, bless him, had a little op that made that certain. Isabel will celebrate her 16th birthday in a couple of weeks. And we are all coming together as family and friends. We're going to come together and, and celebrate those fantastic memories she gave us in the three months she was with us. I know it's like the pain isn't as, it doesn't feel as raw every day. It probably will today, but it doesn't feel as raw every day. And I can talk about her norm normally without being quite so upset. And I smile now for the love and the joy she gave us, for the, for the change that she made in, in me and us. And I suppose the only thing is if you're sat listening to this and you've gone through similar journeys, please be assured that time does allow you to heal. It, it adds perspective. And I hope by sharing my story, Danielle, Sarah, that you realise, people realise that they're just, they're just not alone and they can reach out. Thank you, Steph, for taking us through your journey. And, you know, I'm sure all the listeners are very grateful that you have felt that you could share that with us today. And I think this is a good point probably to pause this podcast and we will revisit the rest of your stories and how we can hopefully make a difference to other people and how we can teach the businesses out there regarding things that they could do differently and that they could have in place in order to make these heartbreaking situations that are happening very frequently across businesses better. Thank you, Steph. And thank you, Sarah. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We will be back next week with part two of this very important podcast. If any of the issues which we have covered in today's podcast have affected you or those close to you and you would like some additional support, please visit our website where there are some useful links.